Welcome to Full Prefrontal, the show that exposes the mysteries of executive functions. This show is a collection of conversations about the role of the prefrontal cortex, which impacts your focus, planning, problem solving, emotional balance, and independence. These conversations will introduce mental tools that will empower you to shift your mindset for a successful life. And now, here's your host, Sucheta Kamath. Welcome back to Full Prefrontal, where we are exposing the mysteries of executive function. As always, I'm here with our host, Sucheta Kamath. Good morning, my friend. This is going to be an intriguing conversation. I'm very much looking forward to it. Thank you, Todd. Great to be with you. And yes, it is our probably fourth, fifth attempt to connect with experts in the field who study and bring incredible knowledge in reading. And reading is so critical and vital to the growth of children who are going through formal years of schooling. And so learning to read is complex and teaching children to learn to read is equally complicated. At um, a reading conference, a question was thrown around, what percentage of 16 million children living under or below the poverty line has a book in their house or in their home? And the answer is 33%. When I heard that, not heard the answer, but the idea that only 33% of children have access to the book, and it is quite devastating. But the true question is, does this query truly capture the challenge faced by children living in poverty and their poor reading skills? And is access and exposure to reading our books is adequate? So reading is a building block of formal learning. It's a gateway to information processing, yet many educators still approach reading just the way they approach child's natural ability to acquire language. You know, babbling uh, leads to child's first word, which then takes to combining words into sentences. And before you know it, uh, voila, you know, child stops pointing, instead starts speaking. And it's a beautiful process. Witnessing that is magical. But development of spoken language is invisible and the magic in it is very tempting to then translate into development of reading. So let's, you know, the conventional wisdom might say that let's just surround uh, kids with books and they will pick those books up and suddenly develop keen interest in reading and will become great readers. Is that so? And is that the only way or the helpful way to view the development of learning to read and the reading ability, which is the foundation for of educating the man? So that's why we have a very special guest today who is going to demystify all that for us. So today we have a very special guest, Dr. Louisa Motes. She has been a teacher, psychologist, researcher, graduate school faculty member, and author of many influential scientific journal articles, books, and policy papers on the topic of reading, spelling, language, and teacher preparation. And I'm very, very interested in this particular, the way she weaves all these uh, aspects of reading, and uh, our listeners are up for a treat for that. She was co-principal investigator of the NICHD Early Interventions Project in Washington, D.C. And in addition, she led the committee that developed the International Dyslexia Association's knowledge and practice standards for teaching teachers of reading. Dr. Motes developed her current approach to teacher training called L-E-T-R-S, Letters, from her experience as an instructor at the Harvard Graduate School of Education, St. Michael's College in Vermont, the Dartmouth Medical College uh, School De- Department of Psychiatry, and the University of Texas, Houston. Boy, it's overwhelming uh, to listen to her credentials here. Dr. Mote's awards include the prestigious Samuel T. and June L. Orton Award from the International Dyslexia Association for Outstanding Contributions to the Field, 
the Eminent Researcher Award from the Learning Disabilities Australia and the Benita Blackman Award for Reading from the Reading League. She also has served I, I am as the president of International Dyslexia Association and having been on the board in the IDA at, um, Georgia branch, uh, it's such a privilege to be with you. Welcome to the podcast, Louisa. Thank you for having me. So this podcast is about executive function, which entails goal-directed and purposeful actions, adaptive flexibility, intentional focus, self-correction behavior of behaviors. So in short, executive function skills guide and direct actions, behaviors, and thoughts, as you know. So do you mind if I start with you as a learner and thinker? What kind of student were you? And were you attuned with your own strengths and weaknesses as a learner? And how soon you became attuned with that? And uh, since your interest lies in reading, what kind of strategies did you discover to guide your own learning to read skills? Well, I would say that I was very fortunate as a young child to have very strong executive functions, if you will. I was very independent as a learner. I was organized. I did things ahead of time. I could multitask. So that was a blessing and it enabled me to perform well in these demanding academic environments. I lived in the same household with my brother, who is exactly the opposite. And I would say that I have firsthand experience with someone who has a serious uh, issue with executive functions and um, really? so I'm well aware of what this uh, constellation of abilities is. And then with regard to my own developing interest in this field of reading, I was fortunate to have a first job when I got out of Wellesley College. I went to secretarial school to get a job. This was a long time ago when women could be secretaries or teachers. And I got a job in a neuropsychology laboratory as the secretary. And then they promoted me to technician after a few months. And I started learning a lot about the brain, about learning disorders in children and adults. And then I went on from there. And 10 years into my career, was very fortunate to have amazing professors at the Harvard Graduate School of Education, where I got my doctorate, who taught me about language and about reading processes and uh, really opened my eyes to many of the ideas that I have since been working with since I, I left graduate school. Wow. You know, it's such an interesting journey you have taken. I did not uh, realize that you had a brother who struggled with these issues. And it's so interesting, isn't it, that your innate alignment with that organized thinking guided your ability to pursue the goals and achieve them much more effortlessly, I bet. And, and I've heard you speak many times. So this idea of, you know, your Harvard professors opening your eyes about the role of language, which a lot of educators who get degree in education may not be aware of. I myself, right. I have uh, undergrad and uh, master's in speech language pathology, and I have master's in linguistics. And one of the most fantastic experience, educational experience for me was getting that master's in linguistics and having done comparative analysis of two Indian languages that just was so like opened my eyes to this, uh, you know, phonology, morphology, syntax, semantics, and pragmatics. I'm hoping that yes. we'll talk about that. <laughs> so, Oh, that's wonderful. We are kindred spirits then. Yes. I mean, I think you are one of those scientists and educators who talks very, very passionately about the role of language. And I just find that it, it's such a disservice 
for those who come into teaching without knowing the profound role that language plays. So yes, we are connected. So it's hard for people to understand about the act of learning to read. So can we get started with defining and describing the process of reading? Can you walk us through that? Yes. And uh, so I would start with something called the simple view of reading. And it it sounds simple. (laughs) And it is an equation that a scientist named Phil Goff coined in 1986. And it's been well researched. And the basic idea is that in order to learn to read, we have to be proficient in two parts of an equation. And part one is the foundational skill of being able to recognize the words on the page and attach sound and meaning to the individual words. And the second part is the ability to comprehend the language that the words are representing, to comprehend language not only at the word level, but at the sentence and passage level. And so the equation says reading comprehension is the result of the product of word recognition and language comprehension. So if you have no skill or too little skill in either side of the equation, that is, if you are not good at recognizing the words accurately and fluently, or and or if your ability to comprehend the language that you're reading is underdeveloped for one of various reasons, you could be a poor reader. Or let's say it in a positive way, to be a good reader, you have to be able to recognize the words and comprehend the language of the text. So we represent fluent reading with comprehension as the result of a a series of interconnected psychological skills that we can measure and identify. And one of the important aspects of our discussion here that underlies our ability to talk about this is that reading acquisition and reading difficulties are among the most researched aspects of human cognition of any. I mean, you look at how much we know about various psychological functions, and reading is right up there as one of the most researched and one of the best understood at this point psychological skills. If I may ask you to also add, maybe, you know, a lot of work has been done now and Stanislas Dehaene, even uh, like the concept of the brain was not wired to read. So read is something we, do you mind commenting on that a little bit? Yes. In your introduction, you said what is, is so true, which is that reading is not a natural skill. Our brains are not wired to read in evolutionary terms. The ability to read that humans only invented 5,000 years ago, and very few people could do it. The ability to read is a very late developing human skill in terms of the arc of evolution. And while our brains are wired for oral language, and it is this miraculous thing when you watch a young child progress from uh, being able to hear, to being able to babble, to being able to comprehend a little bit, and then all of a sudden the words start coming. I know that my grandchild is two now, and I've watched this unfold. It's just amazing (laughs) how it unfolds. But it is not sufficient for most kids to just surround them with books and print and expect them to learn how to do this. And looking at our national data and the number of kids who have trouble learning to read, it is obvious that this is 
not an easy or natural skill for kids, and it certainly does not unfold as oral language learning unfolds, kind of in spite of the context in which a, a child grows up. Although I say that with a qualification because, of course, there are huge differences in oral language achievement, if you will. That is, some kids become verbally proficient with oral language usually as a consequence of a lot of stimulation and interaction with caregivers and adults and others are less fortunate, don't have the verbal interaction with caregivers or adults that enable that wiring that's already there to be stimulated and the language areas of the brain are sort of less populated with words and with sentence forms and with uh, knowledge of how language is used socially and so on. But nevertheless, unless you put a, a, a child in a closet with mm-hmm. no stimulation, they're going to learn how to talk more or less well. That's not true with reading, and there are a number of sources of evidence for that. And if I could then just talk about my own experience as the project director uh, with the NICHD Early Interventions Project in Washington, D.C., the population we were working with was almost all African-American, almost all below the poverty line, almost all in schools that were totally segregated and schools that had a very poor track record for student achievement when we started our project in nine of the schools there. So I learned from watching all of that, that these kids who were at high risk and had historically been low achievers in reading language could be taught how to read. But it was um, that process of teaching them required professional development resources, instructional materials, and a lot of coaching and support for the teachers who were working with the kids. And then lo and behold, what we found was those kids who were and came into school in kindergarten with all the symptoms, all the signs on early screening of being at risk for reading problems, in fact, could be taught how to read if the teachers knew what to do and had the tools to do it. And they were in the average range by the end of the four-year project. And I learned how important it is to provide kids with explicit systematic instruction. And I, from that experience, as well as, you know, dozens and hundreds of other studies showing the same thing, kids can be taught how to do this even if they come to school being at a disadvantage when they enter kindergarten. And so much is is possible. It is possible to eradicate Mm. most reading failure with really strong early intervention. I would prefer to do it at the preschool level, but even if we get kids in kindergarten and provide sustained instruction of the right kind over several years, we can bring most of those kids into at least the average range and that the whole distribution of achievement looks a lot like the middle class, more advantaged kids and and uh, how how they are learning as a population. So you talk about so many important points that that I really would love to see if we can get to this uh, one particular aspect 
and before I get there, I, I wanted to quickly share that I, in 2015, I uh, uh, was selected as a Leadership Atlanta uh, class of um, 2015. Um, 80 leaders from the community were chosen to go through this year-long process of understanding and diving deep into the concerns that the city faces and the Metro Atlanta faces. And we had something called Education Day. So all the experts, including Beverly T- uh, Daniel Tatum, you know, came and spoke. And I was familiar with a lot of, uh, because of my work, but it was interesting that these leaders were not familiar, but when they saw the stats regarding uh, disadvantaged children and their failure to read, and one of the projects, uh, the group of 80 leaders in the room came up with this idea that let's start reading to the kids. And I was just, mm-hmm, I mm-hmm. felt so discouraged to like, no, 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 that is not where the problem is, you know? So, mm-hmm. so I think mm-hmm. people are desperate in trying to come up with solutions, but they are just hitting the wrong target. So why don't mm-hmm. we talk a little bit about that? You know, when it comes to reading, the general consensus is, and you often have heard you say that teachers are not bad teachers, but they have bad information. So what are some of the common myths uh, that have plagued educators for a long time and including whole language? I I don't know if you're open to talking about that as well. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I have nothing to lose. (laughs) Um, Well, as you say, the problem is really with teacher education and teacher preparation I don't know if I've ever met a teacher who wasn't really motivated to help their kids learn. I don't know. I can think of very few who didn't work quite hard at trying to get their kids to read. But what we find when we go out and do our professional development, which is very focused on understanding the science of the reading brain and what we know about teaching we find that the information is almost unknown to most of the teachers we work with. Also, Which is a true shame. That I mean, they, that is such a... It is a shame. And they're shame. very grateful. Yeah. When we give teachers and teacher leaders and administrators substance and understanding about reading, they're really grateful because then they have something to go on. And they're, they're, gonna, they're going to think about the whole process of teaching very differently. Now, so, Louisa, one it, question about that. Are you saying the information is almost unknown? It is how reading works on the brain or how to effectively teach or all of it? What are they, what is the most unknown to them? Okay, I think the most unknown is that learning to read and write depend on a whole slew of language proficiencies, beginning with phoneme awareness. So there's very little understanding in spite of the fact that we had a research consensus that was written about widely in the mid-1980s and on through the 1990s and nailed by the National Reading Panel in the year 2000, and which has been reiterated and followed up with a number of consensus reports about what, what works. Phoneme awareness, the awareness of the speech sounds in the language is not something kids are born with. Only the fortunate few kind of pick this up. And most kids need to be taught and need to have their phoneme awareness developed in order for them to make sense out of phonics or the relationship between our write, our alphabetic writing system and spoken language. So words are not processed as wholes. It's an an illusion that we learn through some kind of holistic visual process. 
and this this is just not well understood at all. So, Louisa, do you mind giving uh, people an example of that phonemic awareness? Because I probably bet yeah. average Joe doesn't know the term phonemic awareness. Okay, okay. <laughs> phoneme awareness means that what those letters that we look at represent are the individual single speech sounds and words. So, in the word "sing," there are three speech sounds, four letters, but three sounds: a, m. And the last sound is represented by a letter combination. In the word that, there are four letters and three speech sounds. TH stands for th, and then we have a and t. Any word in, in print in an alphabetic writing system has to be processed at that level. It is an erroneous but prevalent belief out there that we recognize words in print by their outline or by some kind of holistic imprinting of the image of a letter sequence on our brains that gets matched up with a spoken word. That just doesn't happen. And as our recent scientific reports, for example, Mark Seidenberg's wonderful book called Language at the Speed of Sight, where he, as a cognitive science researcher, explains in detail that when we look at a printed word, we are matching very rapidly the individual letters and letter combinations with the individual speech sounds in a word. So if you take a longer word, let's take the word strap, st, er, ap. That one has five sounds and five letters. But if you take the word shrink, sh, er, a, nk, five sounds, and six letters. There's a complexity in, in the English writing system that many of the speech sounds are represented by letter combinations rather than single letters. But anyway, the, the, this ability to take a word apart into its speech sounds and to, with some measure of proficiency, not only recognize the sounds, but recognize subtle differences in words that are almost the same except for one sound, as in think and thank, or sing and sung, or sing and sink, and so on. The ability to rapidly understand that words can differ only in one sound, and then to make the match between speech and print, is the essence of what was involved in recognizing printed words. Without that ability, we cannot learn to read with proficiency. There is no such thing as an illusion that we learn to read words mm -hmm. as wholes. Now, one of the reasons why this is hard for people to understand as they start to teach reading is that once we have learned, once we've gone through the process of matching speech and print, we map words to our in our brains as orthographic images. Okay, so there's a specialized part of the brain mm -hmm. in the lower part of the occipital lobe in the brain called the word form area. And Stanislaus DeHaan's book, Reading in the Brain, and, and his lectures, you can see on YouTube and so on, explain this beautifully, how once we've gone through the process of decoding a word or recognizing this, the match between the print and, and speech, we can store the word as an image that enables us to recognize a word instantly. But that instantly recognized word 
in the brain of a proficient reader is not processed as a undifferentiated whole. We still, even though it's extremely rapid, just in what, 50 milliseconds or so, we still connect the sounds in the spoken word to the print, even if it's extremely rapid. And as David Sher, who is an Israeli psychologist who has studied this forever, says, there is no such thing as a, quote, sight word. Now, I'm sort of getting into the weeds here, but let's just back up and become more practical. In essence, the science says, in order to teach kids how to read, we have to lead them through the process of being able to recognize the individual speech sounds and words. That's phoneme awareness. We have to teach them how print matches up to those sounds. And then we have to go beyond that level of speech sound to print mapping and enable students to recognize other aspects of language that are represented in print. And one of those is syllable patterns. And the other is what we call morphemes. And morphemes are the meaningful parts of words. And those meaningful parts of words are often spelled in a way when we look at them in print. Can you give, an, give us an example of a morpheme okay. real quick? Yes, real quick. A lot okay, of people so are, another... I mean, a lot of people are not familiar, which is, this is why I feel like, oh my God. I mean, because of my background, because of what you do, I think this, we breed this kind of information. Can you imagine a teacher who's teaching a, a pre-K or a kindergarten class doesn't come with that, this knowledge unless she went and specialized in something. And it's right. such a disservice because she doesn't even know what morpheme is. I mean, right. I was reading some survey about teachers' knowledge about these components of reading, and it's so poor. It's yes, not that's bad. right. <laughs> Sorry, yes. continue with your morpheme. Yes, no, you're absolutely <laughs> right. Okay, so morphology, let's take the word connection. Okay, there's a suffix, I-O-N which marks the word as a noun. There is the Latin root net, N-E-C-T, which is also related to N-E-X, as in nexus, meaning, you know, the place where things are joined. And the prefix, C-O-N, which is a form of the prefix C-O-M, meaning with in Latin. So it means putting things together with one another. Or the word attractive, A-T is a prefix. Tract, T-R-A-C-T, is the Latin root, meaning to pull. And I-V-E is uh, an adjective suffix. Uh, Marks the word as uh, playing the role of adjective in a sentence. So I know that when I go to spell attractive, now this is maybe a little esoteric, but how come we have two T's in the beginning of that word? We have two T's because the prefix is A-T, and that's a form of A-D, meaning to or toward, and it gets changed to match that root. And then the root is T-R-A-C-T. So if I put the prefix together with the root, I'm going to end up with a double T. There's a logic to that. And then when I look at the word, I can see that double T and recognize that there's a prefix and a root that have to do with the, the meaning of the word. And I can make a reasonable guess at what the word might mean if I don't know, and then I can go look it up or use context to bolster my sense of the meaning of the word. But back to whether teachers know these things or not, I have had teachers ask me what Latin is in workshops, 
No. Um, I mean, oh, oh yeah. Wow. Uh, licensed practicing teachers. I have had, and this just gets back to the fact that I personally was extremely privileged in my education. I was privileged to go into a doctoral program where Carol Chomsky, Noam Chomsky's wife, was our linguistics professor, and she required every student in the reading program to take a course with her called Introduction to Language. It changed my life, and then after I had that experience, I just kind of got on this shtick that I've been on for decades, (laughs) trying to campaign for the idea that teachers want this information. They need it. They respond wonderfully when we give them the information. They are thrilled to find out how to explain language to kids. They are thrilled to teach a spelling lesson that is about why you have two T's in a track. They are empowered because then they can understand what's going on with the kids whose spelling, for example, shows they have no idea what's what in a word like expression or attraction. And they know, they can see what they have to teach, or they learn about what the phonemes are in English. And they then learn how to do a screening test to find out how the kids are doing in their development of phoneme awareness. And they can see what they need to to be teaching. So again, I don't fault teachers. I just fault the uh, whole system that has developed forever that separates the teaching of reading from knowledge of language because these need to be married. They really need to be married. We know, if I could just summarize the basic idea here, we know without a doubt that (laughs) being able to read the words and to be able to comprehend the language, those those, two basic parts of learning to read require language proficiencies at at all levels and require insight into language at all levels. So the essence of good teaching is to teach language at both the word re- the word recognition level and the passage comprehension. Sorry, if I may jump here uh, just to yeah. make people understand that we're not whenever in the context of teaching foundational skills, when we refer to language, we are not talking about language as people understand as Spanish, English, or Marathi, Hindi. I speak five languages, but it is the structure of language that holds the language together, right? So we're talking about uh, phonology, morphology, semantics, syntax, and pragmatics. It's a a contextual use of language, but the single unit of language being sound uh, symbol relationship, right? Yes. And every, we call them language layers. Every system within a language or these subsystems of language that you just named are the meat and potatoes of teaching, reading, and writing. And if our teachers were helped to learn this uh, fundamental relationship between spoken language and written language, there are a lot of things that they do by default that they wouldn't be doing. Um, and I'll just use one little example. Spelling, which to me is very important for a number of reasons. I mean, kids, in order to be able to spell, kids have to really know a lot about words and be able to store words in their word form areas in ways then where where they have complete knowledge of a word. Because if you don't have complete knowledge, you're going to make errors, right? You're going to have a partial spelling. But by complete knowledge, 
you have to know the sounds, the way they're spelled, the syllable patterns, the morphemes, the meaningful parts, and often the grammatical role that the word plays in a sentence. And the the example I I use is if someone asked me to spell the word past, I'd have to know whether the sentence required P-A-S-T or P-A-S-S-E-D, which sound the same, but which function, you know, one's a verb, one's a noun, and they spell differently and they're different morphologically <laughs> and so on. So spelling is often treated as a rote memorization process where you just tell kids, teachers, because they're not even helped to with a good program. They just are supposed to throw up a list, tell the kids, go study it, uh, write the words 10 times, and come back and do a test on Friday. But the teacher's not going to be able to explain how words, why words are spelled the way they are without this background in language structure. Once the teachers learn it, the whole tenor of the instruction changes. Teachers are thrilled to be able to explain why words are spelled the way they are. There is usually an explanation. I am fond of saying that only about 4% of English words really are so arbitrary in their spelling patterns that you just have to say, okay, just practice this until it sticks. Because most of the time, we can explain on the basis of where the word came from, its language of origin, its meaning, its morphological structure, its grammar, and so on. We can we can explain. And one principle of learning is that we all remember, this is not just specific to spelling and reading, we remember what makes sense to us. So if we have thought about, or we remember what we have thought about, and I just love that adage. I think we got it from Dan Willingham. We remember what we have thought about. So <laughs> yes. if, if the teacher's helping the students to think about words from these various angles, they're much more likely to form a mental image that is like shining a spotlight on that word as a linguistic entity. And with so that the students looking at it with insight and understanding, and that's going to really help nail that word in memory. So here's so many thoughts come to my mind. So two quick thoughts. You know, I worked in at Mass General uh, in Boston for eight years and we moved to Atlanta and I was driving. We had to bring our cars down here. And as we entered the borders of Georgia, uh, there was announcement. This was um, as end of summer school was about to begin one week or two weeks before that. And the announcements were being made regarding gatherings to be had that they were going to interview people for the position of teachers. And I was flabbergasted. I said, you are going to what? So they, they were having these a massive like YMCA, you know, asking people to show up and they would hire, they would be higher on the spot. And now that I look back, though, after me growing up a little bit more, understanding complexities of educational system in this country and also access, I mean, it, good teachers is a privilege. You know, getting a good teacher is a privilege. So schools are trying to or schools or districts are trying to fill the spots which are vacant. And then they are going to hire people that are available. But those people are not experts in learning or teaching and have yeah. no background knowledge at all. Yeah. And can you imagine yeah. this this whole thing that you were talking about, understanding Latin, understanding root words, understanding history of a word? 
And second thought came to my mind, have you read the book called Our Magnificent Bastardized Tongue by uh, John McWhorter? He's a linguist. Have yes, you? I have. Well, I oh, have my one God. of his. I have I one love, of his books. I love him. I love him. And have you uh, subscribed to his podcast? And here I'm plugging somebody else's, but it's called Lexicon Valley. And oh, I love it. Yeah. It is fantastic. So he, again, as a linguist and, you know, Jeff Nunberg, these are the people who are, um, have made linguistics sexy, I would say, that people are like, uh, you know, having some con- context and its influence on current happenings in the world. But that deep, deep connection, I just am so uh, saddened that people have not taken in interest in the structure of language and not saddened as, as a, like paralyzed by it. But as you explain the, these things, these sound to me are accessible to people who view reading uh, roadblocks as disability. So once you yeah. enter the dragon of disability, then you get specialized teachers who have gotten this knowledge. So do you believe yeah. this is a good model? I'm sure you don't, but what do we do? (laughs) I'm horrified all the time. (laughs) I've been horrified for five decades. What can I say? (laughs) And at the same time, you know, I just always thought it was, on one hand, wonderful that I happened as an individual to come across this knowledge base. Lucky me. Exactly. Horrified that it wasn't routine for anybody. You shouldn't have to get a doctorate from Harvard to learn what in the heck a morpheme and a phoneme are. Exactly. You should be able to learn it in grade school. Yeah. <laughs> and then, uh, then our culture is monolingual. I mean, yeah. I'm so blessed to yeah. have grown up in India and speaking four languages before I showed up here. But they are all phonetic languages. And so the sound yeah. is represented exactly the way it sounds. And coming yeah. to English, like I, I look like I have a disability. Like I tell I have like yeah. a. Uh, formal language disability, like I don't know where the the and preposition disability, you can say, but I just can't yeah, figure English that out. English is hard. Yeah, English is is more difficult. That's a that's a proven fact. I mean, there are many alphabetic writing systems that are more transparent than English, but it doesn't mean that English is hopeless. It means that it takes longer to learn it, and it takes systematic instruction, and it takes instruction. It it, it usually is true. The kids aren't at a level of adequate fluency in reading until the end of third grade. That's what most of our data, our norms, for example, on reading fluency show us that it takes till about the end of third grade for most kids to get to a level of fluency where they really can read independently for you know, some sustained period and be able to get new words from context and from their decoding skills in their existing vocabulary. So it's a pretty prolonged process and we have to be much better at doing this and not leave kids to flounder as we do or teachers. (laughs) Well, you wouldn't believe it. (laughs) We are uh, coming to the end of the podcast. I mean, I just could talk to you for hours. I have a question as we come to the end about making that leap from learning to read and reading to learn. Do you mind quickly telling us about what are some of the important things that you often preach about and teach educators when you are in front of them that they need to know how to make that unveiling of that accessing meaning through reading. And that process is difficult, the second part of the equation, as you were saying, right? Absolutely, absolutely. Very complex and dependent on a number of factors that interact with one another. Vocabulary, background knowledge is really important. 
knowledge of how to find your way around a different kind of a text, syntactic processing, or being able to comprehend sentences. But I think the 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 idea now that's getting a lot of prominence, Natalie Wexler just wrote a book about this, and there are a lot of important ideas in that book. And the idea is that when that, that in order to promote comprehension, the first thing we have to do is pay attention to curriculum and content learning, and that we are going to do better teaching kids how to comprehend if we're, first of all, focused on what it is they are supposed to comprehend, and secondarily, think about the strategies that enhance comprehension of any individual text, such as, oh, you know, the things we do, finding the main idea using a graphic organizer, uh, writing a summary, asking good questions, and those sorts of things. Those strategies should be embedded in text reading that is chosen for its relevance to content in a well-thought-out curriculum. And her point, which is, I think, well taken, is that we have, in the guise of teaching reading, given kids random exercises in reading this or that passage about this or oh, that so true. topic. And so true. that's not the best way to do it because background knowledge and deeper understanding of the concepts in a content area take a while to develop because they enhance comprehension. It's just very important to be rethinking a knowledge-based curriculum and how, how vital that is. And there are groups that have been working ever since the passage of the Common Core, been working on that aspect of curriculum, uh, coherent content in science, social studies, the arts. And I would just, uh, what I say to Natalie Wexler and others who are in, say, Achieve the Core and things like that is just don't leave language study out of the menu of things kids need to know about. And it yes. often gets overlooked uh, from that end of things as well. So if we can just add to the list of things kids need to study and know about, in addition to ancient history and biological science, et cetera, et cetera, they need to know about language. And it is a very good thing for them to be exposed as early as possible to a second language, if not a third. And that is uh, cognitively enriching. and. There's a lot of transfer there, so um, <laughs> yeah. So that so that 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 all could take about eight hours of discussion. All those ideas. <laughs> you know, I, I am going to say, if I may, if you allow me to be on my soapbox in this uh, coherent content spread of uh, coherent content, I feel why not teach linguistics as a subject? Mm-hmm. You know, yes. I feel that's like such a missed opportunity. We are teaching stuff. But we're not teaching the framework, the, the you know, the help children develop the X-ray vision. So they need what they understand. There's something underneath this that holds mm-hmm. this whole thing together. And if, yes. uh, if I can just say to something you, you said, which is so poignant, is teachers are not often or maybe not all teachers are doing this, but some are, uh, is they're not expressing the value of learning. They're not telling kids why the why. Of learning. And that's why there's a disjointedness. Even if you have Common Core and you're teaching content, if they are never made aware that this 
way of thinking is really connecting so that you learn how to identify the main idea and identify the the collective summary and be able to pose a question for self-advocacy. You know, all those things sometimes, again, are insidious to learning, but they are not made explicit and transparent. That's where the executive function skills connect to it, I feel, is taking Mm -hmm. agency in learning how to learn. Uh, Yes. Yeah, very much so. (laughs) Well, Louisa, I need to have you back again this is just completely insufficient time <laughs> uh, and, fun. And it was so much fun I truly am so grateful for you taking the time and diving a little bit deep uh, all the experts that I have had have taken um, a bite at uh, some other aspects of reading and its critical relationship to learning to become good information manager I think you have uh, you know taken us into the depth and the crevices of reading. So I appreciate that. (laughs) And is there anything we are forgetting to ask or any parting words? I appreciate finding another person in you who is spreading the word through your podcast and activities. And I thank you very much. Oh, you are very kind. Thank you for all that you have done for our field and our community and the way you passionately have attended so many of your workshops and the way you inspire people and and give them tools that empower them with knowledge and not just knowledge, but practical, applicable tools. So I'm indebted to you uh, for teaching me. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Thank you. All right. Wow. That's all the time we have for today. So Jada, I think you know that uh, one of the main focuses of our foundation is combating illiteracy. And this conversation certainly gave me some things to think about in terms of how we deal with that problem. Fascinating stuff. So uh, our, our audience, uh, if you know of, of someone who might benefit from listening to this conversation, we would be most grateful if you would kindly forward it to them. So on behalf of our host, Sucheta Kamath, today's guest, Dr. Louisa Motes, and all of us at Cerebral Matters, thanks for listening today. And we look forward to seeing you again right here next week on Full Prefrontal. Thank you for listening to Full Prefrontal, exposing the mysteries of executive functions. To contact our host, Sucheta Kamath, and learn more about her work on improving executive functions, visit her website at CerebralMatters.com. That's CerebralMatters.com. Tune in next week for the next informative episode of Full Prefrontal.